This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, this is Dennis Welch, and uh, I have the privilege of being a guest on Dr. Karen's show today, and we are going to have a great time. And uh, what we're going to talk about is the joy that comes with finding your calling and the energy that comes from doing every day what you're here for in this world. My guest today, Dennis Welch, is a multi-talented writer of both books and songs. Today, we will focus on Dennis's book publishing business, while our part two segment will be devoted to his music. So be sure to listen to both segments. For the past decade or more, Dennis Welch has had the privilege of promoting authors, their books, and their ideas. For him, it's more than a job. It is a calling. He is president and owner of Articulate PR and Communications, a firm he launched in 2012 after a five-year run as VP and publicity director at a top business book PR company. Prior to that, he was in management for 13 years at the Gallup organization. And at Gallup, he was a senior staff writer during the decade when they produced many of their best-selling books. Words are his passion, and he has learned through the years that carefully choosing the right ones can open doors in a big way. His authors have appeared on national TV, written and contributed to top business publications, and they've been interviewed on radio far and wide. He is an author himself, penning two books, So What Are You Saying? and rich people shop here. Dennis says, my mission is to help authors figure out their message and to deliver the most important parts of it with the most impact. Dennis lives outside of Austin, Texas, and is married to Susie. So Dennis, welcome. Welcome so much to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. I'm delighted to have you here with me today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I know that the audience is going to really benefit from everything you have to say today. So we're going to jump right in, Dennis, and go right to the deep end of the pool. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so I first want to ask you uh, just a little bit about your business. You, you own and operate a public relations firm that specializes in books, a book publishing company, and you see your work as a calling. So tell us how your business is a calling and a ministry, and how is that different maybe from other businesses that are not necessarily ministry-focused? First of all, I've been blessed because I, I, I had a brushed up against the, the power of words very young, and uh, so I could read and, and spell before I started school. And they wanted to start me in the third grade. And my mother was wise enough to say, no, he already likes to play sports and he didn't want to play sports against people two years older than him. And so 
So let's start him in the first grade. They had me tested. I don't know what what they found out, but whatever happened, they wanted to start me earlier. And so uh, in, in a later grade. So anyway, I started the first grade and on the first day, you know, they have little reading circles, right? And so uh, the very first day, I didn't know what was going on. I'm a kid starting school and I sit down in my reading circle. And when I sat down, the principal who I had met earlier, she had had me read to her. I, my mother and I came up to her office one day and I read to her and then she said, okay, close your book and tell me what you just read. And I told her, and that was when they decided they wanted to put me in the third grade. Anyway, so I started in the first grade. So I had met this lady. We called her old iron pants, by the way. Okay. It was the boys did, but it turned out that old iron pants was Mrs. McRee. And she showed up at a time in my life, even at six years old, that I really needed her to be there. And so she walks into my classroom, Dr. Karen, and she says, uh, Dennis, come with me. And I thought I was in trouble. I thought, God, I just got here and I've already done something wrong, you know. And so I step out in the hallway with Miss McRee and she takes me by the hand very sweetly and walks me down to the school library. And I'd never been in a library. I, was, I grew up in the inner city, Houston. Libraries weren't on our list of things to do. And so I'd never been in a library before. I didn't even know they existed. We walk in the library and we walk over to the corner where the street was and their big windows were. And she turned around and held my hand, still holding my hand, looking around this library. And she said, now, Dennis, you don't need to go to Reader Circle. Okay, you don't have to do that. Every day when the reader circle gathers, she said, you politely excuse yourself and you come down to the library here. And she said, here along the wall are books for, for little kids, you know, first grade to third grade. But the rest of this is the works of Mark Twain and Charlotte's Web and all that. She said, you can choose any book you want and you can read for an hour. And so... Dr. Karen, you can imagine what that was like, you know, and so I started reading. I read all the works of Mark Twain before I got out of elementary school. I fell in love with books. And so, you know, I've always carried that. I mean, I'm an avid reader uh, and I know the power uh, because I experienced it, you know, of, of, of a great book. And so, you know, when I left the Gallup organization and got into, I didn't even know people did this kind of work, quite honestly promoting books. And so I did it for four years with a, a bigger firm. And then I went out on my own. And what we decided when we went out on our own was this, and this is the answer, I think, to your question. If this was a job, then this would be a transaction. So you write a book, you bring it to me, and you have a checkbook, and I have a slot to fill and you write me a check and I fill the slot and I do your work and that's it. That's to me, that's a job. Okay. But the calling carries all of these other requirements. I would call them requirements with them. So the calling says, no, you can't take Dr. Karen's book just because she has a checkbook and just because you have a slot open. And so you, you have to be a good steward of her money. You have to. So first you meet Dr. Karen. This is how we do it, by the way. And you have a conversation and you see if there's some kindred spirit here, right? Oh, and then when she sends you her book, you read her book. And if you don't see the hooks come up for how to talk about it, you pass on her book because there's somebody else who will see the hooks. So we say no a lot. 
because this is our calling. And you know what? Sometimes we say no when there are a lot of slots to fill and we need the business. But we say no anyway because we know that's the right thing to do. And may I say that in now, and we're near, uh, I guess, 11 now, we've never not had what we needed. We've never lost business because of that. And the last thing I'll say about it is I, I have an MBA and I don't do anything that I learned in MBA school, except I do have an accountant. They told us we should have an accountant. But the way to do, we normally do business is you take everybody's money. You scrape it off into the can. You sit on the can. You don't give it to anybody. You know, you, 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 you keep trying to make more. It's all about making money. And you know what? If it's your calling, it's okay to make money. You know, I have to pay bills and stuff. But that is not what this work is about at all. Let me unpack that a little bit more because I want to go back to your teacher, the one you called Iron Pants, because in a sense, she was also ministering to you. What I heard in that story is she looked at you, she saw gifts that were there, and she thought to herself, what's going to be the best way to bring these gifts out? And she knew that putting you in a regimen with other children who might have been at a different level probably would have been boring. So she took you to the whole panoply of the library and gave you free reign and said, you read anything in here that you want to read, because she knew that would be preparation for you. And she didn't just send you to the library. She walked to the library with you and she held your hand. That's what I heard you talk about. So if we think about that picture and we think about the way that you work with authors today, it sounds like you pay attention to this message. Is this a message that resonates with us? Can we promote this message? And if not, it would be a disservice to that author for us to take the book. I thought you were going to say we would figure out how to write the hooks, but you said, no, somebody else will hear those hooks. So it may be an opportunity for someone else is what I hear you say. Exactly. And the other thing that I would say to that, as you were talking, I was also thinking about, you know, the work that we do, uh, people think uh, I'm just, I just come in today and I'm, I'm here from eight. If you're a principal, maybe seven to four. And I just do what I do every day. And there's a lot of paperwork and there's all these things. But the truth is, is that this woman changed my life and she changed the lives of everybody who's ever read any books of mine or that I've ever worked with who've gone on national TV shows and talked about their message and changed somebody else's life. I mean, the ripples of that one thing she did, which was to me was beyond the pale when I look back at it, I think. How many schools today, Dr. Karen would say, you know what, let's not just stick with a tried and true with this person because I know him now and he, this is not going to work for him. So let's think on our feet a little bit and let's come up with something that will be transformational for him. I mean, that, that doesn't, I don't know if that happens very much, but it happened for me. And I, I you know, I never went back to Miss McCree and I wish I had, I wrote, I wrote about her in my book and uh, maybe even in both books, but I never got a chance to go back and say, you don't know. You don't know the impact of your being willing and humble enough to come down and get me and walk me down and let me do that every day. What a brilliant idea that was because that changed my, my life. I think, you know, if you have a sense of mission about being a teacher or an administrator, this is how you do it, apparently. You know, this is how you, you say, I want to make a difference in kids' lives. Here's one way to do it. 
you know, get to know them and say, what do they really need to be great? Because, you know, you and I talked about it in our conversation offline a month or so ago. Don Clifton, the inventor of the Strengths Finder, said, every single person on the planet can do at least one thing better than 10,000 other people. Every person, even the guy sleeping on the park bench out there, he is able to do at least one thing better than 10,000 other people. The bad news is, he said, most people don't have any idea what that one thing is. Part of our work in this world, I think, is helping people figure that out. Because when you do, the light bulbs all come on and you get to have this life that you didn't even know existed. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And I think it's really a wonderful thing that you had a role model for somebody doing that with you so that therefore you could see the impact in your own life and be able to model that later when you're now working with the authors that you're working with. So let's talk about that a little bit, because how do you even end up choosing which books and authors to work with? You mentioned that one of the ways you choose is based on whether you believe that you can make a difference in promoting that book and having it be, let's say, transformational for them. What else is important in that equation? What are you looking for as far as the synergy between you and the author? The first thing is, uh, you know, it's funny how people always want to send me their book first. You know, they go, you're going to love this book. Of course, I'm going to love, they're going to, it's going to think that they've just spent three years writing it. So this is their baby, right? And so it's really a combination of things. And I can't tell you how this works. You know, there was an interesting uh, interview with Paul McCartney on 60 Minutes here a few months ago, and he was in his studio and this young lady was interviewing him. And she said, so, you know, I hear that you don't read music. And he said, no, uh, but I see music. And there was a pregnant pause because she didn't even know how to follow that. And what he was saying to her was, I'm Paul McCartney and I'm not being uh, on my high horse about it. It's just what I do. And I, and it's like my gift, right? And thank God he figured out what his gift was because all of the great songs from the Beatles would have never been written. So I can't describe it to you, but when I sit down, when I like if we're having a conversation, so I always say, no, don't send me the book yet. Let me talk to you. Let me hear you talk about your book. And if I get on the phone or on Zoom with somebody and they start in and it's me and I and my... And I, my, I want to raise my speaking fees and I want to have a bestseller and it's all about their ego and stuff. I'm just going to tell you that unless the book is gone with the wind or to kill a mockingbird or something, that's a no. That's a no. I mean, I don't even need to see the book. So that's one thing. And only once in, in these 11 years have I not followed that. And I was really sorry that I did because I had a, I had a client for three months it felt like three years. So that's the first thing is I just need to hear you talk. What's your mission? And then while you're talking about your mission, you know, uh, okay, I get that. So now send me the book. And when I start to read a book these days, at least in the last decade, I guess this is something that happened, but I start reading and I see music. I see music. I see what the hooks are. You know, people say to me, Hey, you're a songwriter. What does that have to do with what you do every day? Well, think about what songwriters do. They have three minutes. They can't waste a single word. They have to make you care and do something. That's exactly what my job is every day. I mean, it's the most complimentary two things I could be doing. So if I read it and, I'll, and I see the music, 
then I know that, you know, then it's my job. It's on me. And oftentimes I'll come out of here, my little office here and walk down the hallway to Susie, my wife of 41 years and my lovely assistant who I met on a blind date 42 years ago, thank God. And she'll say, you must be going to take a book. And I say, how do you know that? She said, because you look forlorn. You, you look like you have weight on you. And I, I, you know what? It's true. Because if you operate like that, then you care about this book like it's your own. And so if it doesn't go well, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this work and it has a lot of pieces attached to it. But the main thing is, it's almost like ownership is the right word maybe, you know, is that when I take your book, I feel like it's mine. And I know that, that and we pray about it and all those things, but, but I just know, you know, after I see the book, I know I'm supposed to do it. And, and then what that means for me is, okay, I know what you put into this. I know how much time you spend on it. This means I've got to be, I'm going to have to outwork everybody because nobody knows you. I mean, we've only had one real superstar on our roster in 11 years. But it hasn't mattered because people that nobody knows or have been in the Wall Street Journal and on, on you know, Bartiromo and I mean, you name it. So a lot of it is, is figuring out, okay, if you see the music, let's sing that song to the media, a very distracted media that doesn't really care about us. And let's make them engage with us. And if they do, then anything can happen once that conversation starts. And that's God's honest truth. Anything. You can get on any show. Did I answer your question? Well, somewhat. So let me summarize. And then you're also going into something else I want to talk about as well. So here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that it's really important that you establish first the relationship with the person. And then you also connect with their mission, their vision, and see if there's synergy there. And then if you're able to see the music that the book produces, then you can envision ways to promote it and ways to actually get it out into the marketplace. And if those things aren't happening, then that client is probably not the right one for you is what I'm hearing as a summary of, of how you kind of choose, you know, which authors and which books to pay attention to. That's exactly right, Dr. Karen. That's, you, you, you summarized it perfectly. Wonderful. So you're starting to talk a little bit about this next area, which I want to unpack a little bit too, because we know that a lot of people these days are writing books. So what is that secret to getting noticed in this busy and distracted world where we live? You've gotten people in the Wall Street Journal and in front of all of these other big venues and so on and so forth, because you heard something in those books, you heard the music in it. So what is it that you do for your clients? Let's say that maybe a normal publishing company, they may not even have that gifting. They may not care that much that they might not do that gets the unknown people even in front of these, these big outlets. We have a motto around here, and that is that every good thing happens in a dialogue. And most of us are not in enough dialogues. And social media fools us into thinking that we're, we're, we have friends and that we're in a dialogue with people. That's why people go on Facebook and make political comments and say, there, you know, I set those people straight kind of thing. It's like, no, you really didn't. Nobody's really listened to you because you're not in a dialogue. But here's what I know, Dr. Karen, that idea has some strata 
okay? And one of the strata is that it impacts how you pitch a very busy media. So I don't need uh, to tell you if you're the a producer at CNBC, I don't need to tell you the whole story. I don't want to tell you the whole story because if I tell you the whole story, you won't need to talk to my author. You don't even need to talk to me because I've explained the whole thing. But if I send you enough information to intrigue you enough, you know, my contact at CNBC gets a thousand pitches a day from people like me. I got to figure out the hook to make you, if you're one of those people, at least reach out to me and say, okay, Dennis, I'll bite. You know what? I'll, I'll take a book. Can you send me a copy of that? And here's what I know, Dr. Karen, when that happens, there's a 90% chance of coverage there. They don't do that for nothing. They, they do it for something. They're thinking of something. And I've, I've struck a chord with them. I've picked up on a news item and said, hey, Dr. Karen can talk about this better than anybody. You should have her on your show. Okay, I'll buy it. I'll send, go ahead and send me that. And when that goes to them, I know my chances just went up exponentially now for some coverage. You know, I write a press kit. You know, all of these pieces of, of uh, all the tools are built to do one thing, and they are built to start a conversation. Because I don't want to have the conversation with you. I want you to have it with my author. And if you have it with my author, you're going to love these people because I do. To me, that's the secret. And, and there's, there's so many different ways to do it. We could spend the rest of the day talking about it. And that's part of what I love. It's the creativity part of it. I like that because you're saying that it's really not formulaic. And a lot of people think in terms of a formulaic approaches. Mm-hmm. So I'm imagining like a beautiful painting, all right? Let's say a work of art, and each work of art is different. Each painting is different. And so you have some skills and abilities that allow you to create the painting in such a way that those who are wanting to interview people or to talk to individuals who have ideas, they say, ooh, we like something in that painting. We want to talk to the artists who created that. So talk to us a little bit. Give us some examples of maybe authors or works that you've actually brought to the surface, illuminated in this way, such that they really did get traction. My first client, when I started this business, by the way, I was in my mid-50s. You know, I was kind of a wreck. I was thinking, you know, when I was 20, I was not a wreck. I, I, I was like, let's just wing it. And let's try this, you know. But in my mid-50s, I'm thinking this needs to work, okay? I hope I heard what I think I heard. So my first client, all of our business for 11 years, by the way, every dime of it has come from word of mouth. So people tell somebody, call that guy. He'll know what to do. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. When I don't, I try to find you somebody that knows. Well, my first client, of course, was a referral, just like the rest of it. It was a, a nice harbinger for what the rest of these 11 years are going to be like. And he calls me up and he said, I've written a book about starting how to start a business from nothing. And it's called Startup. And so I'm thinking, my inside voice is thinking, really? I mean, that book was probably written five times last week. So I'm thinking, already thinking no to this. 
But instead of just emailing him back and saying, it's been nice working with you, you know, I don't think we're interested or whatever, I thought, let's start off, let's do this right, okay? He's here in town. I sent him a note or called him, whatever, and I said, let's meet for coffee and let's talk about this. And I fully intended to say no. So here's what happened. This was a great lesson. So I get over there with this guy. By the way, his publisher, he was the first book in their newly formed business book division. This publishing company was in New York, and it was a little medical publishing company. Their big book the year before was about your pulmonary system. I don't even know what my pulmonary system is. It probably sold five books, and now they've got this business author. They're not looking for anything special. They're not, they've never even seen promotion. Anyway, I sit down with a guy, and he's a nut, and he's got, his hair is all sprunged out, and he hasn't shaved in days, and he is gesticulating wildly and talking about electric cars, and I was fascinated by this guy, and I liked the book. I thought he was, I knew he was very smart. I just didn't know he was like this. I let him go a while, and finally, I stopped him, and I said, you know, Kevin, I said, um, you're kind of the mad scientist of entrepreneurs, aren't you? And he got a big smile on his face and he said, wow, I love that. And I said, well, look, let me be honest with you. I said, I came here to tell you no. I said, but you're too interesting, man. And you are smart. And I said, so we're going to do this. And here's what I charge. And I didn't even do a proposal for this guy. I just told him here and here, Susie will send you a, a bill or something. I said, but I want you to go back to your office I want you to get in front of your whiteboard, but first, I want you to do a bunch of square roots like you're going to the moon. I want it to look like some big mathematical problem, even if it doesn't mean anything. And then have somebody take your picture. Just don't shave or nothing. I said, just stand up in front of it, and somebody will take your picture, and then I want you to send me that picture because we're using that. So he does, and we write the press kit. And we start our outreach. And here's what I'm saying to people, Dr. Karen. Hi, you know, uh, good morning. So one, here's another thing is that we don't do any press releases. We don't do any dear insert name here stuff. We, we pull big lists, two to 300 people. We go to each one individually every week. Good morning, Dr. Karen. We hope you had a great weekend. You know, let me tell you about this guy I'm working with. It's just fascinating, really. Here's what I was saying about him. I have found the mad scientist of entrepreneurs. And he lives in Austin, Texas. Who knew this? He knows more than anybody I've ever talked to about starting a business. He would love to be interviewed or write for you or whatever you'd like. So that's how it started. So the first couple of weeks, it was kind of quiet. Well, 10 o'clock one night, I'm sitting here at this desk and bing, my email goes off and it's a Wall Street Journal editor of their small business division, the part of the, of the paper. And she says, hey, Dennis, would the mad scientist of entrepreneurs, she used my language, be interested in being interviewed for a story we're doing about starting a business? I said, that's a rhetorical question. Tell us when and where, and he will be there, okay? Kevin gets on the phone with this person. He's amazing. I knew he would be. He hits it out of the park. Well, a couple of days goes by, and then I get an email from an editor. I haven't even been pitching. 
And she says, hey, Dennis, would the mad scientists of entrepreneurs be interested in writing an article for the Wall Street Journal? Again, this is a rhetorical question, absolutely, lutely right? So he writes an article for them. Well, when that happened, the head of his publishing company called me on the phone. I've never had this happen before. And he goes, hey, Dennis, what the hell is in the water in Austin is what I'd like to know. He goes, I think I just couriered a book over to the Wall Street Journal, and I've never done that before. And he goes, what are you doing down there? And I said, you know what? Listen, I said, this is all him, man. I said, this is all him. He's very interesting. He wound up becoming a regular contributor to Forbes. He still is today. Crazy things happen. But here's why that happened. And this happened, by the way, over and over again, this has happened. It's because we didn't just go straight at it. You know, here's Bob. He's written a Kevin or whatever. He's written a book about starting a business. No, find some hooks. And if you find the hooks and you know what, then you can get people into a conversation. And that, listen, that picture of him in front of his whiteboard was hysterical. And he looked a little unhinged, <laughs> honestly. Well, actually, that was the secret sauce. What you yes. really did is you made him memorable. You made mm -hmm. him an object of interest or a person of interest that would mm -hmm. stand out. He already had, I'll say, his own internal genius, which a lot of people have, but without the right packaging, nobody cares and nobody sees it. And right. so you packaged it up in such a way that people would say, yeah, we want to hear about that genius. We want to take a look at it. We want to pay attention to it. We want to see it. So I'm glad you shared that example because it makes it more tangible. And therefore, I can see the, the creativity and the artistry in what you do and how you find the people and then you find what's memorable, unique, or interesting about them so that you can position them in the right places and so that the right people then will call and, and want to hear from them. So that, that's actually a great example. Now, I know your background is very varied. You've worked for Gallup. You've worked for other entities besides Gallup. Talk about that background and how it's prepared you for what you are doing today. It is varied. You got that right. It's, it is varied. But here's the thing about it. You know, I did a, I was uh, asked to do one of my friend's daughter is in the University of Texas Film School. And about three years ago, she called me. She calls me Uncle Dennis. She said, hey, Uncle Dennis, my team and I are doing a documentary film and we would like for you to be in it. And I said, absolutely. I don't even know what it's about. I said, but you know what? But if, you, if it's you, I trust you. And so I'm going to go be, I'm going to go be in your documentary film. So Susie and I drive down to the University of Texas Film School and I walk in and I sit down and then all the lights come up. They do all the makeup and all that stuff. And then, which probably didn't help by the way, but anyway, so, uh, and there's all these little fresh faced college kids standing there. And then my friend's daughter is standing here and she stood right in front of me and she said, so her first question. So, Let's see, you are 60, whatever I was, 63, let's say. And she said, when you were 23, like us, how did you know you'd be here? Isn't that a great question? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I said, well, first of all, to be honest, I didn't know I would be here because I didn't know there was a here here. I would never have brought myself here. I said, but here's the thing. I said, I knew what being here felt like. 
And as much as I was able to economically in my life, I said no to things that didn't feel like this. And I said, and let me be clear, I said, if you turned, if my life was a road and any of you turned on it to start going forward on it, it would scare the devil out of you and you probably would back up and look for another road, okay? I said, but when I look back at it, it's as smooth as glass because every place that I felt stopped, Dr. Karen, in my life where I felt like, you know what? Oh, man, I think I failed. I don't think I did. I must must have done something wrong. Almost always, I stopped and there was something in my periphery that I was supposed to be doing that I wouldn't have seen if I had kept hurtling forward. And so here's what I learned from all of that. And I would pivot to this thing. And I pivoted to the thing that felt like being here. And when I did, you know what? I would go, I started on that road and I would start down that road and I would think, wow, I didn't even know this road existed. And look at all the resources on this road and look what can be done here. I didn't even know that, right? The problem was that every one of those things prepared me for this moment You know, because here's what I really think. I think that we miss out on the kind of life that you and I talked before about the numbers. So so there's a question Gallup has been asking for now 30 years on their Q12, and it's at work. I get to do what I do best every day. For 30 years, only one person in five, this is a self-reported question, so this makes me believe that the numbers are worse. Because who you ask, are you any good at what you do? And they go, no, I don't think so. That's crazy. So the numbers have got to be worse. But for 30 years, only one person in five has answered yes to that question. And that's a tragedy. That says, you know what? That says your unique gifting and your the miracles that you could produce are not happening because you've chosen to stay in, in what you think is the, well, it's just an illusion really of safety. I don't mind failing. This is what I learned. I don't mind failing because I can fix failure, but I don't want to have any regrets because you can't fix the things you never tried. And so that's really how I got here. And look, nobody's more surprised than me. I mean, when I'm doing this work and I love it, I mean, I love what I do every day. You know what? I, I, I didn't know that I would be here loving what I do. I just thought I would be, shoot, I'm 66 years old. Most of the people my age are starting to retire and stuff. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I want to die on a Friday night. I want to get a full weekend, you know, to work on this stuff, right? So that's how you can have that kind of life. But it's a little scary. I'll be honest with you. You know, it's really interesting. I had this picture in my mind of travel on highways and so I was imagining, since you're in Texas and you you were raised in Houston, I was imagining, I have no idea what the distance is, but of driving from Houston to Austin. And I would imagine that if you're driving from Houston to Austin, you have to take some off ramps. You have to get on some different roads and highways along the way. And it doesn't mean that the ones that you're on are the wrong ones. 
they're the right ones for that time and for that period in your life. However, if you stay there, you won't get to Austin, so to speak. And so in a way, it's being willing to pay attention to the road signs in your life to know when it's time to take an exit or an off-ramp or take the next highway to get to the destination, which in your case, you identify the destination by what it feels like in being there. You know what I'm saying? And that's how you know if you're in that place or not. Well, the other thing that's very important is that I have very few naysayers in my life. I'm married to a woman. You know, so here I was, I was an itinerant musician, recording artist, struggling, you know, into my mid-30s. And I happen to have a business degree and I go to work for the Gallup organization who didn't care that my hair was down to my shoulders. They they gave me the test and it says your management material. So we don't care what you did before. What a blessing that was. And they I spent the next 13 years getting pats on the back and paychecks and more and more responsibility and went back and got an MBA and all this stuff. But then one day we were on our 25th anniversary uh, trip. We drove around the United States. We called it the Summer of Love Tour. Uh, I took dance lessons. Susie's a great dancer. And we were on our way to New York City to the Rainbow Room to go dancing, okay? We wound up in Miami. We went all over. People called us from friends would say, wait, the Summer of Love Tour has started. Is Miami on it? No. Well, look, let me put you up in the Palm and you can come down here and write. It was very sweet. So we were at the Palm in Miami and I'm sitting down on the beach. Now, remember, I had been, I'd never had a real job before that. And I'm married to this woman who is so sweet that she was fine with that. We figured out a way. But now I've got some security, right? And I'm sitting on the beach and under a little thatch hut and apparently didn't keep out the truth, okay? And here it comes. You're done here. You're done with the Gallup organization. It's time to move on. And Susie came and sat down beside me. Here's what she said. This is why I'm where I am. She said, what is going on with you? And I said, well, I'm almost afraid to say it, but I think we're supposed to leave the Gallup organization and go find what's next. And you know what she said, Dr. Karen? She didn't say, what? How are we going to pay the bills? How are we, who, what customers do we have on the line? What security? What she said was, well, I was just wondering what took you so long. I already thought that six months ago, and I should have said it, but you know what? But you're right. It is time to move on. And I mean, we didn't have a single customer. We had no prospects. It was like, but we knew we were done there. And so it's very important if you're going to do this right to have people around you who are real counselors, who are comfortable saying no to you when you need to hear it, but not to say no to you just because something cool is happening for you and it's not happening for them, that they live that kind of uh, uh, zero-sum game life where they want to keep you back here with them kind of thing. Uh, it's like, go find your version of a great life, but don't don't deny me mine, right? And so, the only way this works is to figure out how to shed the naysayers in your life. Find people of faith, find people who love you unconditionally and are comfortable saying, that's the craziest idea I ever heard, or 
you go and I'm going to put you on my prayer list and I will be here for you if you need me. I have a whole country full of those. I'm grateful for those people, but that didn't happen by accident. And it sounds like your wife is really the perfect partner for you because she's very intuitive and very observant and she sees and knows things in advance. From the stories you've been telling today, that's very clear. And she's not afraid of making the changes and taking that off ramp or going to the next thing because she knows if it's best for you, then it's really going to be best for the family in that sense, rather than keeping you stuck somewhere that feels like a comfort zone, that but that could really be a trap if you were to stay there. So that's a wonderful partner who's able to see it and to encourage it and to go with it, you know, right along with you. And, you know, I know how blessed I am because I know, I know that that's not the case. Oftentimes, you know, I have a friend who said every day that my dad went to work, he stopped outside the gate and he threw up because he made him sick to go to work, but he couldn't quit because he was, he had to keep the lights on. What a miserable existence that must be. And I know, look, I've had to do some things because of economics, of course, but in my heart, my eyes were lifted up to something bigger and better Absolutely. That was out there for me. And I never had to sit down with Susie and say, let me explain this to you, even though I do, because I love her. You know, I write love songs to her all the time that people say, I can't bless another love song to Susie. Well, you should live with her. Mm-hmm. My life is great because she's not a naysayer. She's not a doubter. So I love that. That's just profound. It means God brings the right people together to be our spouses and our partners and who can support the dream and the vision. And it means something to them as well, not just to us, which is a great thing. Let me ask you, you've written two books. I want to ask you particularly about your book that you wrote that's more a memoir about your mother. And that's the book about rich people shop here. (laughs) Tell us about that book and what was the inspiration, something about the story of your mother and how you decided to write that? Mother was uh, fascinating. That's all I can tell you is she was fascinating. She, she had the most outsized impact for a person who, who never was famous. In her community, she made huge, huge, amazing things happen. She was a great servant of God. But when she married my dad, it was her third marriage. She had been married to two other men. I had my older brothers, one brother from each. So my older brothers were from those relationships. And then she met and married my dad, and he was a mess. And he, he had been in and out of jail. He was a, uh, a binge drinker. He would go a whole year and not drink any a, a drop, and then he would just be, he'd be gone. And so, and he would get out and drive, and he was, he, anyway, he was, he was in and out of jail. He was violent. And so after I was born... You know, we never had a lot of money. Let's just me to say that, you know. And so uh, after I was born, she started going to church and taking my brothers and I. And my dad didn't like it. He was very unhappy on Sunday mornings. We all got up and went down to this little church on Berry Road in Houston. And so one night uh, after a couple of months of that, and it had been kind of miserable for her. You know, she was really putting up with a lot from him because he was he didn't want her to go. So one night she wakes up around, you know, maybe two or three o'clock in the morning, middle of the night. And my dad is sitting on the edge of the bed, smoking a cigarette. And she says, uh, are you okay? And he said, no, I'm not. 
He said, I'm, I'm just falling back through all the crazy things I've done. And he said, I don't know what to do about them. He goes, am I supposed to carry these around for the rest of my life? And she said, well, you know, I know you don't like me going to church, but can I tell you something I've learned there? When you bring those things to Christ and you ask for forgiveness, he casts them as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more, like they never happened. That seems like good news, doesn't it? And he's not a big talker, so there wasn't a lot of conversation after that, but you could tell he was really thinking about it. Two weeks later, we're sitting in this little church on the front row. I don't remember any of this. I was a baby, but she tells me that all of a sudden, my brother turns around and sees my dad on the back pew, and he had brought his own car. He wasn't socializing with anybody. He wanted to come here for himself, okay? And two weeks later, he walked down the aisle, accepted Christ as his Savior, was baptized, and everybody's life changed immediately. He became a Sunday school teacher, a deacon. He never drank again in his life. You know, it, it was just amazing, okay? So the story is, when we were got into, into school, this is how it all really began. The, the Houston Chronicle asked me to write a series of stories for the Sunday Chronicle, just first-person stuff. So I wrote Rich People Shop Here. It was a little 800-word story. When school started, my mother would take us all down to the secondhand stores to buy our school clothes. And she would wheel into the parking spot, and she would say, put her hand on whoever's in the front seat. She would say, listen, don't feel bad about shopping in these kind of places because a lot of rich people shop here, okay? So, you know, in the story, I said, yeah, I see that. I had to step over a couple of the Rockefellers who had passed out in the doorway to get in to buy some stuff, you know. But then I said, but as the years went by, and I realized that wealth is not necessarily about money. It's about a good reputation. It's about doing your calling. It's about the people that you have in your circle who love you unconditionally. My mother's one of the wealthiest people that I know. And so it turns out my mother had never told me a lie still never told me a lie. Rich people really did shop there. And so there was this huge reaction to that. And people said, we want to know more about her. She was extremely smart, but kind of Lucille Ball crazy. Like she would just, like she took her kids one time to the grocery store, not me, because I, I was, apparently I was safe somewhere, but she took to the grocery store and came home, you know, used to pick your your groceries up in a little alley or something, and somebody would load them in your car and all that. She bought all the groceries and came home and bought and made herself a cup of coffee and became concerned that there was nobody getting the groceries out of the car. It's like, uh, mother, you know, you, you didn't come back with the groceries or your children, you know? And so anyway, so she did a lot of crazy stuff. So I decided that I would write this book about her and about our family. I thought, nobody's going to care about this. This is just for the grandkids. So I met her every Saturday. I would drive over to her house, little cassette recorder, and I would say, Mama, now listen, I know I'm your son, and I know you don't want to tell me any bad news, but this doesn't work if you don't tell me the truth, okay? So if Uncle Joe went to jail, I need to know this, okay? Don't hide it from me. So every Saturday, I, I would record two hours of that segment of her life, and then I would go home, I would transcribe it by hand, and then I would write that chapter. 
Well, somebody in the publishing business started reading it. They called me and said, hey, listen, I loved your writing when you were with Gallup. You know, are you writing something? And I'd say, well, yeah, I got this thing and I'm going to go to Kinko's and print it off. Blah, blah. Well, just can I just read the chapters as you write them? Well, what a blessing that was. I had an audience out there. So it kept me moving forward, right? So anyway, when the last chapter was written, uh, this person called me and said, you cannot go to Kinko's and print this off. You can't. This is too important because people need to hear that forgiveness and love work. They work. They work everywhere. And you know what? And so you got to publish this. So I asked this person, I said, aren't there enough inspirational stories out there? And here was her answer, Dr. Karen. I'll never forget it. She said, tell me what day you don't need to be inspired on. And that's the day when there's enough. And so I published a book and it has gone everywhere. I was singing at a, at a funeral of all things. My ex-sister-in-law passed away. And before she died, she said, have Dennis come sing a couple of songs in my service. So I went down there and uh, when I finished, I was putting my guitar up and it was in a park. It was a real celebration. And uh, this girl comes running up to me, young girl, and she goes, oh my gosh, if I had known the rich people shop here, Dennis Welch was going to be here, I would have brought my book for you to sign. And I said, well, thank you. I said, but you understand this would be the weirdest book signing venue in the history of book signings. This is a funeral. You got that part, right? And she laughed. We had a little laugh, right? And so then I said, but look, before you go, tell me about this book. I, I'm curious. What, 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 why do you love it so? And she said, well, she said, my family has never gotten along. She said, we've never forgiven each other for anything. We don't let each other up. It, it's just, it's brutal. And she said, somebody gave me the book and I read it. And I said, you can really do this stuff? And so I went out and bought copies for every single member of my family. And she said, my sister got off of a Southwest jet and left hers on there and made them take her back on to get it because she was in the middle of it. She wanted to see how it ended. I said, well, what was the impact of this book on your family's life? She said, uh, it was life-changing. She said, we've learned how to forgive each other. We've lightened up now. And we love each other in a completely different way. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know if it's going to be a bestseller or what, but I don't care. That's the definition of success, isn't it? I love the story of that book. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and, and letting us know how it's touching people's lives and making a difference even today and beyond your family, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Now, Dennis, as we're sort of wrapping up today, I want to give our audience a preview of things to come because next time we're going to be talking more exclusively about your music. So how about giving them a preview of a song? So what do you think about that? I, I love that idea. I'm going to take my little earphone out uh, and, uh, and I'm going to sing to you. Okay. What song are you going to sing for us? I'm going to do, I'm going to do why not me. Uh, it's uh, it's, it's on a uh, brand new record just came out in um uh, in uh, September of last year, and it was on the first Grammy ballot in five categories. So it's 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 done okay. The album is called uh, "What Love Makes Us what Do." Love makes it us could do have that. been a title track, believe me. And it actually is the title track for Tony Mantor, who's recorded it. 
he's got a new CD coming out and it's, it's titled, why not me? And, uh, it's just a little inspirational song. You know, what day do you not need to be inspired on? Right. So exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, excellent. So then we will hear that. There's a mountain wide and high It reaches halfway to the sky And in my heart I know That I'm supposed to climb All the fears down in my soul Tell me that I might lose control But no matter what they say I'm climbing anyway Cause why not me? Why can't I? I'll never know if I don't try Yeah, I might fail And I might fall But it's just a mountain after all So why not me? There's an ocean deep and blue It stretches out in front of you And on the other side Is everything you dreamed of So say a prayer And then set sail Stay the course And you'll prevail And when the doubts start whispering Just lift your voice Just an ocean, nothing more So why not me? Why not me? Why can't I? I'll never know if I don't So, Dennis, we've covered a lot of ground here today. So let's tell the audience how they can reach you, get your books, get your music. Just give them that information. You can uh, reach me at uh, there's uh, www.welch-words, W-L-C-H, words.com. 
Also, um, my company site is uh, www.bearticulate, B-E-A-R-T-I-C-U-L-A-T-E.com. And uh, either of those have a way to reach out to me on email and all that. All right. Wonderful. And from both of those sites, they'll be able to get your books and your music? Yes. And if not, it'll tell them where to go to get it. Excellent. That's phenomenal. So, Dennis, you've said a lot of things to us today. So, what additional words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of executive business leaders? I would say find your calling in this life and pursue it with a vengeance because it's completely worth it. Ooh, that is excellent information. Pursue it with a vengeance is absolutely worth it. And so today I want to close our show and I want to thank you, Dennis. I want to thank you for being here, telling the stories that you've told, sharing your life with me and also with my audience today. And I want to close with a Bible verse that actually makes me think about you. And this is Ephesians 3 and it's verses 20 through 21, which says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church of Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Dennis, my prayer is that God will continue to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you ask or think. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.